Professor Jonah Berger. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. It's pretty funny. So you write a lot about viral marketing and your book, Contagious, went viral <laughs> in a degree. Uh, what do you think that the, the reason for that was? You know, it, it's funny. So um, uh, I wrote that book just in part because I was teaching a class at the Wharton School. I, I put this class together based on mine and other research in the space. And and there just wasn't enough room in the class. I was teaching, you know, MBAs and undergrads, and there were more people that wanted to get in that, that couldn't. And I started getting notes, you know, hey, I can't get into the class, but can you share the syllabus? And I started wondering, you know, hey, maybe there are more people that are interested in this than um, than uh, can take the class. And so maybe I should try writing it up as, as a book. And so that kind of became contagious. Uh, I don't think I had um, uh, in mind that so many people would, would find it interesting. You know, at this point, it's out in... I think over a million and a half copies in sort of 35 languages around the world. But I think it really speaks to a fundamental question that, that people have, which is why do some things become popular and how by understanding the answer to that question, can I make my stuff more popular, right? Whether you're a, a young entrepreneur, whether you already have a business, whether you're working in a bigger company, you may have a product, a service, an idea you want to become popular. And so by understanding why people talk and, and why they share and why things catch on, we can all make all of our stuff more successful. And how did you take that information and apply it to your life and your future books? I know you just came out with a book, Smart Words. How did you take that information that you learned in researching for the book and in teaching the class um, and apply that to all the stuff that you do? Yeah, you know, so um, uh, Contagious was one of the first times I actually wrote popular press sort of things. So I had written pieces for Harvard Business Review and um, newspaper outlets, but they were sort of short form, maybe a, a thousand word sort of pieces. That was the first time I wrote something much longer. Um, and, and one thing I found interesting in that process is the power of storytelling and, and kind of wondering, well, what makes a good story? what makes certain stories more uh, effective. So at the core, I study human behavior, why people do what they do. Um, and I started to wonder, you know, could there be certain ways of writing or communicating ideas that would increase their, their impact? And so that kind of started uh, a decade's worth uh, of research on language, uh, on natural language processing, using sort of automated tools to extract insight from everything from sales pitches uh, and speed dating conversations to reading online content and social media posts, really understanding what language works and, and why. And, and that really became the basis for the, the new book, Magic Words. And as you mentioned, you study human behavior and why people do what they do. Why do you do what you do? And what was the inspiration for the new book? that uh, just came out, Smart Words? You know, um, I, I think uh, being curious is a really important skill. So regardless of how smart you are, uh, being hardworking and curious are, are two really powerful things. And, and for me, I'm always just experiencing the world as, as we all do. But sometimes I see a puzzle, right? I'm, I'm watching a movie and I'm going, man, I love this movie. Why do I love this movie, right? Like what mm -hmm. about this movie is making it so engaging or this writing is working, but this other person's writing isn't working. Why? What are they doing that makes them such a better writer or, or a better communicator? Um, and so in the past decade or so, there've been two big trends that have really unlocked a, a lot of insight in this space. The first is just language is more available than ever before, right? It used to be that um, when you had a phone conversation or someone sent you some information, there was no repository of that. Now you and I are having a conversation online, you can probably press a button at the end and get a transcript 
of, of that conversation. Billions of people leave their opinions about products, services, and ideas online every day uh, on, on social media, leaving records of kind of what they think and, and their opinions. Um, we can look at online content to see how much people paid attention. Did they read all the way to the end or, or not? There's all these digital sources of data that really open up a lot of opportunities. And then the second is these kind of natural language tools. Um, and, uh, you know, GPT and similar systems have gotten a lot of attention recently as sort of their ability to produce language. But there's also a lot of tools out there that can kind of extract insight uh, from, from language. So, you know, figure out the main topics or themes across a variety of documents. Count the number of one type of word versus another type uh, of word. And use that to understand things about people from the language they use and the language they are impacted by. And so these two uh, features, these two trends have really unlocked our ability to understand language. And, and that's the foundation for the, the new book, Magic Words. Awesome. And yeah, the getting that why behind why we do what we do and understanding that it takes obviously a very high level of awareness to uncover that. And I have found that asking the right questions is the best way to get to that awareness and to start understanding that why. How can we go about asking better questions and improving not only the questions we ask to ourselves, but the questions we ask in an interview conversation and how, how can I get better at this and how can we get better as a whole? Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. So um, I was talking to someone a number of years ago now about sort of how they stay curious and they said something really interesting, which is they, they said, you know, every few months, six months, maybe nine months, whatever it may be, I move the, whether it's art or pictures, posters, whatever it is I have on the walls around. Mm. And I would say, well, why, why do you do that? And they said, well, you know, at a certain point, you've seen something in a certain place so many times, you don't see it anymore, right? <laughs> you've just, you've, you've seen it, you, you assume that you know it and you understand it. And, and I think that's not only a good analogy for the stuff on the walls in our, in our homes, but, but life in general, right? You know, every day we um, get water from the tap, we get into cars, we go to buildings. We don't think about how these things were built. Um, we don't think about the things that lead us to do what we do. There's so much happening that we just take for granted because we don't see it anymore. And so I think if you, you know, you ever interact with a young kid, they don't have, they don't have that jaded sense, right? They're going, how did that plane get in the air? Or, you know, how is it possible we have electricity in our house? Or, you know, why is it that you're wearing that, you know, shirt with a collar on it, right? They, they look at things with those new eyes. And so I think as individuals, before I get to your second half of your question, which is kind of how can we use questions effectively, but as individuals seeing things with new eyes and really shaping our environments in ways that allow us to see things with new eyes are really powerful ways to, to stay curious. To, to your second uh, point about sort of asking better questions, you know, there's a whole chapter uh, in Magic Words on, on asking better questions. And I think questions do a lot more work than we realize, right? We, we think of questions often as ways to collect information, and they do that. But they also shape how other people perceive us. They shape what uh, people focus on attention-wise in a conversation, and, and they shape the nature uh, of social interactions. I'll give you just one example. You know, often when we're in difficult situations, we don't know what to do. We might know a friend or a colleague or someone that might know more than we do. And so we say, oh, I could ask this person for their advice, but we don't. And we tend not to. Why? Well, we think, I don't want to bother them. Um, you know, maybe they're busy. Um, maybe they're not going to know the answer. And even if I, they're not busy and they do know the answer, maybe they'll think less of me. 
right? Like if I'm in an interview or I'm talking to a colleague at work or I'm talking to a friend and I say, I don't know something, I think, well, you're not very smart, right? And so we, we don't ask for advice because we think we'll perceive negatively. But some researchers actually looked into this question. They had people have a bunch of different social interactions. Some people asked for advice, others didn't. And they found something quite interesting, which is that asking advice for advice didn't make people seem less competent or, or less intelligent. In fact, just the opposite. Asking for advice made people seem more competent. And, and more intelligent. You might go, hold on, how does asking for advice make you seem smarter, right? It shows that you don't know something. But what's really interesting is everybody thinks that they give great advice, right? Everybody's egocentric. They think their advice is fantastic. And so when you come along and you ask someone for their advice, they go, wow, you are so smart. Of all the people you could have asked for advice, you asked me. And so you must be really good at asking for advice because you know the right people to ask. And so not only does asking for advice allow us to gain valuable insights, but it also allows us to be perceived more favorably as a result. It's such a great insight. And it's something that we don't realize. And like you said, we, we think we'll be perceived negatively for asking questions. But it's something that you notice through the podcast as well. It builds this connection. There's a certain amount of depth when you're sitting with someone one-on-one -on -one and you're just picking their brain and you're genuinely curious about what they're saying and you're asking questions very authentically. It builds a sense of connection that I don't think people realize um, how important it is to, to do that. I, I certainly agree. Yeah. And, and questions are also a great way, you know, often when we want to get people to do something, we think we should tell them what we want right? We should say, hey, you know, do this, or this is the best course of action. Turns out questions can be a much, much more effective strategy. As I talk about in my last book, The Catalyst, you know, asking rather than telling kind of deactivates that, that anti-persuasion radar, people's natural tendency to sort of push back when people tell them what to do. When you ask them questions instead, they're more than happy to, to answer your question, right? They're happy to share their opinion. People love sharing their opinions. But what also it does is it encourages them to commit to a conclusion. If you ask the right questions, you can guide people down a path that encourages them to focus on some things rather than others and, and can really help us in, increase our persuasive impact. Absolutely. And I find that when I'm asking questions for a podcast, the, the sequence in which I ask questions and when I ask the question has a very big role on how they will respond. And it's almost like chess to a certain degree. Sometimes you have to, you might want to jump to a certain move, but you, you, it's smarter to hold back and wait to ask that question. When, when should we, how do we know when the right time is to write, to ask questions? Certainly. Yeah. So th there's some great research on th this topic. And, and I think this is true in our personal lives. It's also true in our professional lives, you know, um, Sometimes we have questions that are bigger and deeper. We want to understand people. We want to build a connection with them. Um, but the problem is if we start a conversation with that question, it's not going to go very well, right? If you yes. start, um, you know, start a conversation going, man, you know, um, uh, tell me about the most difficult experience you've had in your life with one of your friends. They're not going to want to answer that question, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and sometimes because it's too much right, right away. And so, so kind of how can we how can we get to those revealing conversations? Because research also finds if we just have these small talk interactions, they're not bad. They're, they're useful. But we never get to the bigger, more important things. And sometimes we end up having a lot of these conversations where, yeah, you know, they're good, but we never really get to those deeper things that connect us to, as people. And so how can we get to those deeper things? And so research finds out you kind of have to start small and, and build. 
And what do I mean by that? Well, if you start with only small talk, you never get to bigger things. But if you start with the bigger things, people won't feel comfortable answering them. And so you have to kind of get in this back and forth of asking a question that encourages people to reveal something about themselves. Then you reveal a little bit about yourself and then you, you build on it, right? So starting with more surface questions, but showing that you're willing to open up a little bit will encourage them to open up a little bit, which will then encourage you to do the same. And sort of it creates this reciprocal back and forth where you get to those, those bigger, more, more important things. And so I think it's really important not just to let conversations happen. Um, uh, you know, we do sometimes want to let conversations happen, but, but also to, to manage them a little bit, right? Um, you know, to think about even, even with friends, you know, are there certain things we want to talk about? And I'm not saying plan for it like a job interview, right? It's not, they haven't spent hours for a 10 minute conversation, but even when talking to, you know, a good friend, you know, what I want, what I want to make sure happens during this conversation, not just we have a good time. Yeah. But like, do I just want to talk to this person and move on? Or do I want to connect with them uh, at a deeper level? And so the more I think we at least ask ourselves a little bit of that question before we dive in, the, the better the outcome of that interaction will be. I've been studying this podcaster. His name's Stephen Bartlett. He has the show, The Diary of a CEO. And the reason why I've been studying him is because he gets his guests to open up and to be vulnerable in such an honest and authentic way. And it really, really stands out from other episodes. And I've always been curious of what were the key components there that allow somebody to open up and to be vulnerable. Outside of being vulnerable yourself, what are some of those other things that we can do to create more vulnerability in conversation? Yeah, I think part of that is is helping people understand why it's beneficial for, for them, right? So I, I think particularly in today's social media age, you know, everybody thinks that what they share needs to be perfectly varnished, right? Like your your online uh, profile is a, you know, a, like a greatest hits album of your life where you won this or, you know, you got that or you everybody loves you and you're so wonderful. And that has a, a few problems, right? First, it's not very interesting to read that stuff, right? So, so as consumers of content, um, you know, just sitting there and seeing somebody's greatest hits is, is not that interesting, right? Imagine a movie um, and the beginning of the movie, the character is hugely successful. And then the next thing they were successful again and successful again, you wouldn't want to watch that movie, right? There wouldn't be any tension. It wouldn't be very engaging and it wouldn't make you feel very good about your own life. Um, and so that's the problem with only sort of showing these greatest hits. Nobody's interested in it. And it doesn't actually, in the end, make us look that real, right? It doesn't make us look like we're a real person. Research shows that actually blending those hits with some failures actually makes us better off, right? Revealing when we've, we've failed, revealing when we didn't get something, revealing when, you know, things didn't go as planned. It doesn't necessarily hurt us. You know, we don't seem completely incompetent. If everything we do is, is a failure, that's different. But if most things we do go pretty well, but once in a while they don't, by sharing that, it makes people seem more relatable, right? It makes them seem more like us because for most people, I don't know about you, but my life isn't just a series of successes. There are successes, but there are also failures, right? And, and not only do those failures make us who we are, they help other people relate to us and they make our story more engaging. We did a, a big analysis of storytelling in a variety of different domains and found that good stories are often like roller coasters, right? They, sure, they have high points, but they also have low points. And those low points make those high points so much more engaging, right? It's almost like, um, you, know, you think about a mountain, right? If, if you got dropped off from the top of a mountain by a helicopter, the view is probably beautiful, but you didn't feel like you had to work for it. And so it doesn't, it doesn't feel as good as if you hiked all the way from the bottom of that mountain and you get to the top, 
that view is really much more more meaningful. And so the same thing with stories, right? By by turning them more into roller coasters, by revealing negative or difficult things that happen in our lives, we can help other people see that hey, they can do it too, and make our stories that much more engaging. I was I was talking. I do a bunch of um, consulting for sort of early stage firms, and last week was talking to a, a startup I'm working with. It's having some trouble. Right, some things are going well, but they're having some difficulty, and they're sitting there going, "Man, should we abandon this idea?" Uh, and and I was saying, "No, you know, all startups hit difficulties. The question is not whether you're going to hit a difficulty or not. The question is what are you going to do when you hit that difficulty? Right? A, a difficulty doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean you failed. The question is how can you use that difficulty and learn from that difficulty and build it into your future success? And so I think the same thing as as storytellers and um, as individuals, we need to to recognize that life is a little more bumpy than uh, might it might seem. It's for that reason I love asking my guests what their favorite failure is. Because so often, it's those failures that help and catapult you to success. And many times, it takes a low point to get to that high point. Is yeah. that true for yourself? Do you have a Do you have a favorite failure or something that stands out for you that really helped you get to the place that you are now? Yeah, I mean, I can think. Of, I'll give you one example. I can certainly think of a few, but. Um, you know, I was in college. Um, uh, I had done a little bit of academic research, but I, I thought I was going to be more of like a, a business person. I was running an organization. Um, I went to Stanford University. They, like many schools, do had a concert network, sort of a group that brings live music to campus. Um, a couple of years in, I was put in charge of that group. I loved it. It was sort of my life. It was where I spent all my time. Um, and then I went abroad for a semester, um, and I was, you know, uh, out of the country. Um, uh, and sort of checking my email once in a while. And I got this note from the group saying like, hey, you know, we've loved working with you, but given you're abroad this semester, unfortunately, we're going to have to, you know, basically put someone else in charge and you'll no longer be in, in charge of the group. Um, and at the time I was like, oh, this is my life. Like I put, I hired all these people. I put all this work into building it. Um, you know, this feels terrible. Like, what am I going to do? I've sort of been kicked out of this thing. Um, and it was really difficult. At the time, it was extremely difficult. But what ended up happening is I came back after I was abroad and I, I wasn't able to work in this group anymore, but it encouraged me to sit back and go, well, okay, what do I want to do with my time, right? Rather than just doing what I've done before because that worked pretty well and I enjoyed it, what am I going to do now? Uh, and it encouraged me to think about it and try a few things. And one of those things was get reinvolved with academic research. And the rest is kind of history. I, I wouldn't be here today um, if I hadn't gotten, in some sense, fired from that organization. Not because it was pleasant at the moment, it was really difficult, um, but because it encouraged me to take a different path. And, and I think um, it's not easy to see that at the moment. It's never easy to see that at the moment, right? Few people go, oh my God, that's great. I failed. I'm going to value this so much tomorrow. They're sitting there dealing with the failure or the difficulty. But I think what makes us human and what makes us successful is what we deal with when we when we come across those difficulties. And with your new book, was there anything that you thought coming into the book before you began researching that you believed was true? But then in research, you said, hold up, wait a minute, this is actually not the case. And it caused you to change some things around. Is there anything that sticks out for you? Oh, um, I mean, so so many things. You know, a, a bunch of writing a book like this is is not just confirming what we know; it's it's identifying new things. So, 
you know, uh, the language we use to show that we're listening, um, you know, the ways to persuade others. We talked about a little bit, scratch the surface of asking uh, good questions. There are six types of language I talk about in the book. Um, I put them in a framework called the SPEAK framework. That stands for the language of similarity and difference is the S. The P is the language of posing questions. The E is the language of emotion. The A is the language of agency and identity. There's no K, but there are two Cs, the language of confidence and the language of concreteness. Each of those is a, a category of language. Under that, there are five or six kind of key ways to apply it and sort of different strategies. And so, so much of it um, uh, surprised me and I, and I found quite interesting. But I think, I think the thing I found most surprising was, was the ability to apply these things. I think many of us think, you know, oh, I have to be born a great writer, a great speaker. Those aren't things you're born with. They're, they're things you learn. Um, and if you understand how they work and how to do them more effectively, we can all become better, better at those dimensions. And what was the hardest part of writing the book? <laughs> uh, the writing part. You know, writing, the writing the book is not part. easy. Um, uh, you know, this is my fourth one. It's still not easy. Um, yeah. Uh, it, uh, I always find it quite difficult um, and quite personally taxing. Um, uh, but at the end, it's it's usually rewarding. Well, you're an excellent writer, so it doesn't come off come across <laughs> that way. I'm doing I'm doing my best job of imitating other writers. I, I oh. love. So, I would say for anybody listening, you know, uh, don't feel bad about about stealing others' approaches. Um, if you see something that's working, borrow it, because um, uh, that's what the other folks have probably done as well. Absolutely. Are there are there some writers for you that you like to steal from, or not obviously not steal from, but that that you take some things from? There, there are so many uh, folks that have have given me, you know, great uh, mentorship and feedback and um, knowledge over the years. Um, uh, you know, I love uh, the way Malcolm Gladwell writes, Dan Pink, uh, the Heath brothers, um, Dan Ariely, a, a variety um, uh, of different uh, folks. Uh, Charles Duhigg is also an amazing writer. So I, I keep many of their books um, close by when I'm writing something to sort of uh, touch up on different approaches and, and ways to tell stories. Well, this was great. I'm looking forward to reading the book and diving deeper into these because we only did scratch the surface, like you said. But this was awesome, and I appreciate you taking the time to. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.